So that being said, um, we're kind of shifting gears a little bit this morning. All right, we're, we're taking a little bit of a break. I told you this, we've been 10 week in, weeks into the book of Acts. We're going to take a little bit of break and, sh- and shift gears for a couple weeks as we really explore kind of our call together as a church, what it means for us to think about the end of this year and even beyond into 2015. Uh, believe it or not, some of you may know this, some of you may not, it's a really important time in the life of the church and really in particular the life of our church. On the 21st of November, we will kind of be celebrating our third little movement day, birthday together, whatever we want to call that. That makes three years that we've been sort of functioning together in this authentically thingy church thing we have going on. And, uh, you know, it's not been perfect. It's not always been pretty, but it's it's real and we love it. And so with three years, for some of us in here, it's a huge deal because this has been part of your life for a long time. And so looking at it as three years going and that's crazy. For some of you that have been just coming for a little while, it may not mean as much, but it's a significant time uh, nonetheless. It's also a really important time in the life of our church. As we think about wrapping up 2014 and moving into 2015, we are going to have to make some really incredibly important decisions in 2015 in terms of where we meet and what we do and what that looks like. And those have been really hard decisions to make. And I'll, I'll kind of give you some backstory a little bit later. Uh, next couple of weeks about this, but it's been hard. We've we've looked for some things. We've opened up our, our uh, kind of opportunities. We've had some doors close. It's just been a, a difficult process kind of saying, God, where do you have us? Because we've outgrown the space, and for a lot of reasons, we decided not to renew our lease after December. And so it's been a, sort of a, an exercise in saying, Jesus, we trust you, and it's going to be a really interesting 2015. Um, so it's an important time in our life. And, and we take this time in November and we begin to calculate together what it would look like for us to go all in for the gospel. And part of that process is really thinking about how we steward and use our resources. And so, as you'll see in your chair, you've got pledge cards for 2015. And, and we'll, next Sunday, we'll actually, as part of our worship experience, we'll encourage you to bring those. And sort of as part of your worship, offer to the Lord, God, these are, are your resources anyway. And this is what we're doing together. If you're here for the first time, these pledge cards, please hear me say this, are not for you. If you're here for the first few times, months, it's not for you. It's for those folks that have committed to this place being their home. Um, and it helps us think about how we operate and how we do life together in, in the years coming. It helps us plan and dream. And, and it's an exercise for you to say, God, if my life really belongs to you and my resources really belong to you, then how do I think about how I want to give those away? Now, I know those of you that are here for the first time are saying, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Really? Every single time I go to church, they talk about money. Guys up here going, you know, hey, we're trying to emotionally manipulate you out of your dollars or whatever. And every time I do that, man, I cannot believe it. You know, the reality is, is that you're just lucky. Like, that's just how that works. No, uh, we don't talk about money that much. Um, actually, it's surprisingly how little we do talk about money. Um, and that's not advocating anything that's actually a pat on the back. It's not, really, because Jesus talked about money a lot. In fact, 11 of the 38 parables are about money, right? 25% of all the teaching that Jesus does in the gospel is about money and resources. There's 800 verses in the Bible that are about resources and budgeting and saving and giving. So it's a very prominent picture in Scripture, and Jesus talks about it a lot. And it's important to him, and it's important to the gospel. And, and I think we all can kind of echo that, because if, if I'm giving you my moment of real vulnerability, Meredith and I have been married for 17 years. Um, I know, she literally deserves some kind of medal. It is <laughs> remarkable. I am an absolute disaster. And, uh, but 17 years, I was thinking about that last night. 17 years. And, and being completely vulnerable and honest, I will tell you this, that out of all the fights and struggles we've had, 
difficulties, arguments, you know, disagreements, whatever they are, and there's been multitudes over 17 years. Every, almost all, if not every single one of them, is related to money on some level. I just, just related to money. If it's not about money, it's about what we can or can't do or where it should go or what we think about it or having enough or not having, you know, this or whatever or how we're going to spend it or what we're going to do with kids. It comes down to resources. And so it makes sense that on some level the church should talk about it. And it makes sense that Jesus talked about it so much because it's a huge part of our life. How we think about our financial resources and our, our dollars and cents and our thinking about saving and budgeting in life is a huge deal. And none of us, well, I'm overgeneralizing, none of us do it well. There's always tension there between the gospel and our stuff and our resources. We talked about it last week. And the principle I told you last week that was at play here is really this. And I've talked about it a dozen times. And if we could grasp it, it would revolutionize our life. And the, 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 the principle is this, that my life as a follower of Christ, my life and my stuff and everything in it belongs to the Lord. If we could truly grasp that for what it is, that my life and everything I have, everything in it, my car, my kids, my bank account, my wife, my husband, my stuff, my things, my sweatshirts, whatever it is, it all belongs to the Lord then no longer is it mine, and God is trying to pry it out of my tight fingers, but it becomes my resources then to joyfully give away. So if it's God's, and he has entrusted me to steward it, then I get the privilege of giving those resources to the people around me. And it's what the picture of community looked like in Acts, and we talked about it a lot, that they shared and that no one had needs, and they sold things as those needs arise because they believed that living in community in the context of the gospel was a part of distributing God's blessings to the community. But our culture is so ingrained in an opposite way of thinking that I have mine, right? And we build our houses with our fences, with our garages, with our stuff, and we wall it off so no one else takes it. And when we overflow our houses, our garages, our fences, we go buy storage units that hold our extra things because we're so concerned with making sure that we hang on to our stuff that it's no wonder the gospel's in constant tension with that because it calls us to die and give it away. And not just stuff, but our very lives. The call to follow Christ is a call to come and die, to literally die to myself. And when we begin to realize this, it changes everything. And it's something that I wrestle with on a daily basis. God, my life and everything in it belongs to you. Help me give it away. Not just my stuff, my life. Help me give my life away. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about this in really two categories as we kind of focus on this idea of being together for the gospel. The first this week is what we're going to talk about is this picture of I've got to realize this stuff that's in my life that God has a deep desire for me to worship with it as opposed to worship it. So wealth, God wants us to worship with our wealth and not worship our wealth. And believe me, you are wealthy. You live in the top 1% of the entire population of the world in terms of wealth. Nobody in here thinks they're rich, but every single one of us are. God wants us to worship with it and not worship it. And we're going to use it as a starting place to say, I want to make sure that I'm following the right love. And then next week, we're going to look at it together and say, what if together, for the gospel, for a kingdom movement, we decided that we took whatever meager little things that we had and we offered them to the Lord and say, God, do something great with this. Um, and we're going to see a picture in Scripture that does just that. So next week, we're going to invite you to bring those pledge cards, take it home, pray over it, think about it. What does this mean for us? What does this look like? It's how we think as church. You can always change it. It's just more of an exercise for you to deal with the Lord and then give us as your leadership the opportunity to say, what are we going to try and do in 2015? All right, so all that to say, 
Uh, we're going to be in the book of First Timothy this morning. So if you've got it, I want you to go ahead and turn there, chapter 6. Um, and as we do that, let's take a moment and uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here. I thank you for stories like Patrick and Debbie's. I thank you that you are doing incredible things in the lives of people. Lord, with their journey is, is really no more special than anybody else's journey here, Lord. Uh, sometimes the church holds this sort of higher place for families with children, and if you, that's not the direction you're going or whatever, then somehow you're missing your calling. And the reality is it's just not true. You work in each of our lives and hearts, but I rejoice with them as they've surrendered to your move at this time in their life, basically and obediently. Lord, we all have stories, every single one of us in this room, whether we're single or whether we're uh, married, Lord, or whether we are divorced or whether we are walking through different stages in life, we have stories and those stories matter. They matter to you and they should matter to the community. And so God, help us be better at telling those stories, stories of triumph and victory and stories of failure and hurt, uh, stories of struggle and pain and stories of uh, sort of resurgence and movement. God, make us a community that loves each other's stories and wants to participate in each other's lives. God, as we open up this text this morning, I pray that you would do what you would do is you would confront us with some realities, realities that we're living in a culture that operates in an opposite way from what you desire for us. And we run a real danger, Father, if we pay attention to that culture and being robbed of some of the things that you want to do in our hearts. Take a moment in your own life and just pray. Ask God to whatever little hardened area of your heart you have, because you know that I'm about to talk about resources and money, that you just ask God to soften that, okay? Just ask God to, to, to wear that down a little bit and have him speak to your heart this morning. Lord, we thank you for this. We know you're gonna move in us. Take a moment and pray for somebody around you. Pray that God would move in them, be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, be glorified. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so one last word about money I was thinking about as I was sort of praying. Um, we, let, me, let me put it this way. We don't want your money. This church does not want your money. All right, period. God will provide for us. I'm not concerned about that. None of what we're about to do is to guilt you into giving another $5 so that we can put in a pool, all right? We are not interested. What we are first and foremost concerned with is that you surrender your heart and life to Jesus. That's my whole goal, always will be, always has been. We want you to come face-to-face -face with Jesus. We want you to surrender your life to him, recognize that your heart and everything in it is his, and then deal with the Lord. As God directs your heart and your giving, you do with it what God is calling you to do. I would much rather you be obedient to him, period, than to anything I say. So none of what you're about to hear and experience is a plea for you to give more to the church so that we can install more things that we don't need. All right, none of it. We don't want it, we don't need it. But together, we want you to wrestle with the idea of saying, God, is my heart yours if I give in my heart completely to you, surrendering to the gospel, and if so, how do we live in the context of community? We can put our resources in together for the gospel, all right? So I want you to hear me say that. And, and I, I said this, I say that every time we do this. I said it last year, and somebody in the back said, said, hey, I heard you say it's not about money, but man, it's always about money. And I said, in our personal lives, there's a lot of truth to that. But I, without a shadow of a doubt, will echo and tell you this, that with this church, that is not the case. You can come all forever and not give, but you've got to deal with the Lord. 
you are not going to hear from me saying, look, you've been coming for a while. It's about time you pony up. Like, that is not the case. All of us have had that bad experience with the church, haven't we? We've watched the church use or abuse or whatever money. And so we've all been jaded. Every single one of us on some level, if you've gone to church for any period of time, has been down that road. I remember my first experience. I was 13. 13. All right? I was working or I was living in a, in a community and we were going to church. My dad was one of those guys who attended church, I don't know, six times a year. Might be in a, a record, maybe seven um, times a year. But when he went, you know, he was, he was faithful and he would show up and he would put his little name tag on and, and do all that. And, and, uh, and, and, and I remember the day we were built, the church was actually moving. We were moving from the one location to another and we were building a new building, right? There's a big building campaign. If you've been a part of a church for long, you know those exist. And they're not terrible. They're just part of life together. But I remember the pastor called and he said he wanted to come by the house. I remember my dad thinking, well, that's amazing. I mean, like, I've never come by the house before. And, you know, I don't, we don't go, my, my mom would take us, my brother and I to church all the time. My dad would come about, you know, once every other month or, or once a month or on the big holidays. And, and, and religion was always just Religion was always something that was personal, and that it's a generational thing, I think, on some level. And as my dad and I got older, we had more intentional, deep talks about gospel and life and things like that. But, but I remember my dad going, well, that's great. I can't believe, and I won't use the pastor's name just because I, I love him and I know him still. And, and he said, he's going to come by and spend time with us. You know, my mom scurries around and cleans the house because, you know, the pastor can't know that you have underwear on the floor, right, or whatever. And so, you know, we got to make everything look good. So, uh, you know, and, you know, it's just what we do. And so we run around, we scurry around, and it came over, and, and, you know, he sat down on the couch, and my mom made coffee. And that was a weird scenario for me. I was like, what is happening here? Like, we don't do this for anybody else. But it was like, you know, the Pope was coming into town. And so we get everything together. And I thought, you know, my dad was really, I was listening to my mom and dad talk. He was excited. He was like, this guy's never come to our home. That's a great thing. And I remember him sitting down and he's saying, you know, my dad's name was Bert. He's like, you know, Bert, I, I just, I miss seeing you. I really, I really do. Glad, you know, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to spend some time with you. And he kind of went through his little pleasantries and he looked at my dad who owned a construction company, residential home building company. And he, he basically said this, he said, listen, here's the deal. You know, we're building a new church. We're putting in a gym. Big, and we built a, I mean, that church built a big gym, full size, full gym. We're putting in a gym. And we're really running tight on money. And I was hoping that you would feel called by the Lord to put in our hardwood floor, about $150,000 expense. And I was hoping that you would do that for us, that God was calling you to do that. And so my dad nodded along and, you know, okay, great, you know, glad we're doing this or whatever. And the pastor left. And I remember, my brother and I went upstairs, and I remember listening to my dad. And he wasn't angry, but he was so hurt. That for the first time, this guy shows up at our house, and what he wanted was 150 grand worth of work to build a gym. And, and I don't fault him because I understand the dilemma, right? Hey, this guy's got a, a, a company that does this. Just maybe God has placed it on his heart to give it away to us. But never at any point in time in my dad's life has anybody stopped in and said, hey, look, we just love you. Like, I just want you to be here, right? It was always to get something out. And I think on some level, all of us have had an experience like that, where the church has jaded us with its expression or use or abuse of money, right? You know? And so I get it. I get it. All right? We've all been there. What I want to visit about today is the temptation to kind of buy into the lie. So let's take a look at First uh, Peter chapter, uh, First Timothy, excuse me, chapter 6. So First Timothy is in a section of, uh, of books that we call the pastoral epistles, Really fancy, fancy word for saying pastoral teaching books. 
And it's in First and Second Timothy in a book called Titus. Those are the three pastoral epistles. And they're written by Paul, oftentimes called Pauline pastoral epistles, because they're written specifically to two young disciples in ministry, colleagues, partners, missionaries of Paul's, and he's investing in them, giving them instructions on how life in the church needs to function. These guys were now leaders in establishing churches in Asia Minor, and Paul is writing to them, giving them instructions for how the church across different cultures and across different times should operate and do things, everything from leadership to thoughts on elders and marriage to all kinds of things and money, and handling resources, and all that stuff. And they are epistles, how the church should learn to operate. And so they're very relevant for us today. In fact, as you look at those, if you ever read First and Second Timothy and Titus, they're very relevant to the struggles that our church has today. So we're in the middle of this, coming to the end, and five times in this kind of letter, Paul addresses this notion of false teaching, bad theology, or false doctrine. And he's going to do it again for the last time, and we're going to start there and kind of trace this thought throughout. So let's look at verse 3 together, chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malice, talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is of great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul's wrapping up this letter, and he's giving these in-depth instructions to Timothy, saying basically, Timothy is a leader in this church, is a movement in the church. I want you to understand a healthy approach to understanding resources, because essentially it's going to be extremely problematic for you and for the church, and so I want to give you some healthy understandings. You know, all this false teaching that I've been talking about, I want to talk to you about it again and do it in a certain category, all right, because he's already done it five times in the book. And he does it again. There's a couple things I want to do with this text. I want to break it down and just give you some really simple but profound things to hang on to. All right. And the first thing that we see coming right off, right off the bat at the very first moment is that false teaching is real and it's dangerous. Now, a lot of times we read the New Testament and we think that heretics and heresies and those things that are out there, the Gnosticism and all that kind of stuff is somehow contained to just the first century church, right? It doesn't really apply to us. But the reality is, and we all know this if we kind of open our hearts for a period of time, that false teaching and bad theology is incredibly prevalent in today's churches. It is spewing out of our pulpits. And one of the reasons I try and teach through Scripture all the time, verse by verse, is because I want you to wrestle with the Word and not what I'm telling you, right? So I want to put the Word of God in front of you and help you create a love affair with it, right? But false teaching, false doctrine, bad theology is prevalent in all of our churches, and it's spewing out of a lot of our pulpits, and it's real and it's dangerous. And Paul says, look, there's a couple of characteristics about false teaching that you can know. The first is that it does not agree with the teaching of Jesus. So the first thing that you know about that characteristic is that false doctrine, false teaching, bad theology does not agree with the teaching of Christ, right? It is conceited, meaning it's prideful, it's driven by me. I am somehow attached to this thing, and it would remove me from the equation, right? And all of a sudden, the, uh, the teaching is somewhat hollow, right? 
We've celebritized a whole lot of people in our church culture, and a lot of times our teaching is attached to specific individuals. Sometimes that false teaching is very prideful. Sometimes. It also is, uh, it says it understands nothing, meaning it's ignorant, right? It's missing the entire point. False teaching, bad theology is missing the point behind it. It's a lot of what the Pharisees were wrapped up in. They were missing the point of the gospel or point of the truth or point of the law to get on with the actual purpose or lifestyle. They had missed what mattered. And then finally he says um, that he is conceited, understands nothing, and he has unhealthy interest in controversy and quarrels about words, semantics. How much of our, our theology, our bad theology, is wrapped up in semantical arguments about words, things that don't really matter, what this means or that means, and we miss the context and, and purpose of the gospel. I mean, churches have split over this, right? Things that are non-essential to following Jesus, we've divided the church. So he says, look, False teaching is out there, and it's, it's incredibly dangerous, and it's incredibly dangerous and prevalent in our culture. And I think that if we, were to, if we were to really look at it, there are probably two main categories that our false teaching or bad theology or bad doctrine really falls into in our kind of our modern context, and they're really prevalent in the, in the early church too. And the first is the, the context or the idea of Jesus plus something. The first of our sort of heretical beliefs kind of revolve around this idea. That Jesus plus something. Now, the scripture, and, and Philippians especially, talks about the fact that we as followers of Christ are to put our hope and our trust and our confidence in nothing else but Jesus, period. He is where we put everything. He is our all. I put my hope, my confidence, not in myself, but in Christ alone. We've went, those of you that are here, we went through Philippians, you will remember all that. Like, confidence and hope in Christ alone. Now, most of us would never exchange that. We go to church, we follow Christ, we would never say that I will put my hope and confidence in an object or, you know, in whatever other than Jesus. We would all echo that. But the danger that we run into is that we are taught to put our hope and our confidence in Jesus plus something else. And it spews from our pulpit to put our confidence in Jesus plus my giving, plus my Bible study, plus my prayer time, plus my attendance, right? Plus my own understanding, plus myself. Plus, if I do this, if I do that. So it's Jesus, and I've got to perform. So I trust Jesus, but in order to truly be saved or to truly have a full life, I have to do X, Y, and Z in addition to that. Just go to Mardell, I dare you, and go and look at the self-interest, self-help section, and there is one of all the books that have been written from a Christian perspective on how to fix your life by following Jesus and doing this. And doing that. And look, I'm not saying that there aren't practical ways that we're to do things in our lives so that we can better order those systems. But the reality is when I put my trust in me, my own ability to pick myself up, to perform, to make sure that I make it this many times to church so that God won't be mad at me, to just pray more, to just give more, we run an incredibly dangerous road because the gospel is purely Jesus plus nothing. You cannot do it. No amount of praying, giving, or church attendance will ever fix the brokenness in your life, period. You cannot give your way out of it. First kind of picture we see is that that picture that's Jesus plus something. And we've all bought into it. I mean, I've had those moments where just like, Jesus, if you will remove this from me, I promise I will never miss church again. Or I will never do this. Or I will quit doing that behavior forever. Get me out of this and I will do. Jesus plus something can get me something. It's a lie. We're taught it all the time. I mean, just turn on the TV and turn to any picture of Christian television and you will see an angle of this. 
So the first category that, that sort of runs rampant is that Jesus plus something. The second one is really more what Paul's getting at, which is this sort of lie of the health and wealth gospel, right? The health and wealth gospel in its sort of purest form is this. God desires for you to be affluent. He desires for you to have material things and that we should ask God, pray to God that he would give us those things and that by doing that or by giving away our resources, God will return to us tenfold what we've given. That is a lie that we are told from so many angles that if we just do this, God will financially or materially bless you. Nowhere in scripture do we see this picture where if we just give more or pray more, God will bless us financially. It's actually a misread from an Old Testament passage taken out of context to believe that God will give us if we give him. But the health and wealth gospel says this, I'm going to give because God is going to give me back tenfold. We hear it all the time on TV. If you would just give in this category, God will bless you tenfold. Ask Paul and the apostles how that worked out. Poor. Those guys had nothing and they gave their stuff away. You remember that, the widow that came and Jesus was telling the parable and she gave her last mite? As far as we know, she went away broke. God's promise is never to return on us some kind of favorable financial gain, ever. He calls us to get rid of the things in our life for his glory with no promise of return. It's what it means to be obedient. Jesus, I am not doing something so that I will get anything in return. I will give to you what is yours because you call me to. And what I give has no, why I give has no bearing on what I think I'm going to receive in the end. If you give to this church and you fill out that pledge card and you're like, you know, we're going to give a hundred dollars because I know that God is going to give us a thousand back. Take that pledge card and cram it. We don't want it. Listen, when we give to God so that he will give back to us, it is a lie and it is horrible theology. Health and wealth gospel is dangerous because it says, God, I want to get something from you. It's the reason that I give and you want me to be materially happy. Nowhere in scripture do we actually see that. That God desires for you to have three cars, four TVs, nine bedrooms. Nowhere. The exact opposite is true. God wants you to be so, in, so unencumbered by material possessions that you are ready and free to move in obedience in every turning category. God wants you to give your wealth to worship as opposed to worshiping your wealth. And it doesn't mean that God does not want you to have things. He just doesn't want those things to have you. So the lie that we see and where Paul is getting here is that when we do things, pursue godliness to attempt some kind of financial gain, it is corrupt and it leads to destruction. Listen to what Paul says at the end of that little movement there. He says, listen, these false teachings lead to controversies and quarrels about words, strife, malice, malicious talk, suspicions, right? Suspicions, constant friction between people. Listen, they've been robbed of the truth and they think that my godliness is a means to financial gain. Meaning that if I just get my life in order, if I just act more and live more godly and give more away, I am going to be blessed financially. It is nauseating. But turn on the TV. Go to any of those channels that you want to and watch what comes out of people's mouths. If you do this, it is a means to financial gain. Paul says, that's a lie and it leads to nothing but envy and strife and brokenness. Giving our resource in our life should be a movement of joy. Not of something back. Like, God, I get to give away what you've given me. And if you replace it 
fine. If you don't, it's yours. It's yours. So we've got to realize that false teaching is real and it's dangerous. Listen to what he also says. It goes on to verse 6. But godliness with contentment is of great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Godliness with contentment. Not godliness with desire for financial return or financial gain. Godliness with contentment is of great gain. I talked about this a lot last week. Um, We have got to cultivate lives and heartbeats of contentment. You have to cultivate it. Contentment is not natural. Living in a content life that says, God, I am okay with just you. Like if you were to remove everything else around me, I am okay with just you, Jesus, is not natural. When we surrender our lives to Christ, when we say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, you get everything, it's not like this magical shift happens where we are no longer encumbered by the lies of the world. But contentment is something we have to fight for. It has to be cultivated. It's not natural to be content. We are constantly longing for more. More out of our marriages, more out of our homes, more out of our lives, more out of our workplace, more out of our bank account. It never is enough. Contentment is not natural. Never do we usually sit back and just say, you know what? I am happy and joyful in my life. Paul talks about it. I've learned to become content in every situation, no matter what it is. Because why? I can do all things through Christ. Remember, I mentioned this way back when we did Philippians chapter 4. That verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We lift it out of context, right? We think it means that I can bench press 500 pounds or swim 1,000 miles or whatever. You know, and it's a picture of my dentist. I told the story my dentist had a picture of a cat hanging on a, by like a little fence post. And it says, I can do all things through Christ or whatever. I'm like, what does that even mean? The cat hangs from a fence post? It's a misread. So the idea is what Paul is saying is that I've learned to be content. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ. In other words, I have everything I need in him, so my life is content. Not so I can deadlift or crossfit 5,000 pounds, right? So the idea being of content. Now, contentment is not natural. There's two types of contentment, right? There's circumstantial contentment, and there's gospel contentment. Gospel contentment is that contentment that says, Jesus, you are enough for me. That no matter what happens, even in the most difficult of circumstances, I am content. And don't hear content as saying, I am happy. Content means that I am safe, and I am okay, and I have a joy that is unexplainable, all right? Because life is hard, and it will deal you things that are incredibly difficult. But finding joy and contentment in those difficult times, saying, Jesus, you are enough for me. Even though I don't know how to process this, and I don't know why this is happening, you are still enough for me. That's exactly what Paul is saying. That's gospel contentment. It says that even though I don't have all the things my my worldly self desires, God, you are still enough for me. Even though I'm not hitting this milestone, I haven't found that right significant other person, and I'm in my 30s and I'm single and the world's telling me I'm broken, God, you are enough for me, right? Circumstantial contentment is the kind of opposite of that. It says I am content because I am happy with my circumstances. Everybody's healthy, cars are running fine, house is good, job is good, but circumstantially content. Meaning, hey, I I always could like more, but the circumstances in my life have aligned enough for me to say, you know what? Life is good. The problem is that circumstantial contentment often masks our need for gospel contentment. So I I worked doing youth ministry for years and years and years, and I worked in several different churches, but one of the churches I worked in was a very kind of wealthier, more affluent, white, upper middle class church, just where I worked. One of the greatest struggles I had was trying to demonstrate to our kids, the hundred and whatever kids we had in our youth group, that they actually had a need. Their lives created a system where they had no needs. 
They could purchase their way out of whatever. They had resources at the time they turned 16. They just had no real needs. And I don't blame them. That was the circumstance they were in. But that circumstance masked their real need for gospel contentment. And oftentimes what God will do is he will remove those circumstances to demonstrate our deep need for him. And a lot of times we think that God is punishing us. But the reality is God is demonstrating kindness. When God removes circumstantial contentment to demonstrate a deep need for him, it is God's grace and God's kindness. A lot of times God will take those circumstances in the perfectly way that we have ordered them and everything working and clicking and doing, and God will remove a key piece from that, and we will fall and panic and scramble and cry out for God. And what God is doing is he is showing that those things are temporary, and they are masking our deep need for him. And instead of seeing that as grace and as kindness and as being grateful, we panic and we ask God to take it away. God, please fill that hole. Please fill that hole that I have created there so that I don't have to understand my deep need for you. Put that back. We pray for God's relief. God, take this from me. Remove this. Do this. Put that back so that I don't hurt. And God is saying, I am trying to show you that you have a deep need for me. It's not punishment. It's grace and it's kindness, and God is showing you your need for him. And that's a hard thing to grasp, I promise. It's really, really difficult, but it's part of the growing into our relationship with Christ, maturing, sanctification. It's part of that growing into Christ to realize that those moments can actually be incredible gifts and are incredible gifts from the Lord to see him working in the middle of difficult circumstance to show you that he is enough. We've got to cultivate that heart. It means it doesn't come natural. It means you've got to fight against it. If you're living in circumstantial contentment right now, I will ask, ask yourself, God, don't let me become safe here. I'm grateful for the blessings you've put around me, but don't let me rest here. I want to rely on just you. I'm not saying pray that God will take things or do things. I'm just saying, God, help me not believe that this is what really matters. I want to be okay if some of these things aren't here. I want to be okay with just you. So we've got this idea of cultivating circumstantial commitment. Okay, I'm wrapping up. Two things, two more things, right? But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. All that to simply say, we've got to fight and resist greed. We've got to fight to resist it. Greed is naturally ingrained in our sinful nature. But notice what Paul is not saying. There's a couple of misreads here. He's not saying that money, right, money, listen to this, let's go to verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So we've got to resist greed. But look what Paul says in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What Paul is not saying here, all right, is that money is the root of all evil. It's not some kind of Marxist, you know, anti-capitalism kind of statement. Money is evil, get rid of it. He's saying the love of of money. There's a huge difference between money as an innate thing and our deep desire for it. Money is not to blame. It's our sinful, broken hearts. When we cultivate a love for that, it's the root to all kinds of evil. Now, it doesn't say that it's the root to all evil, right? We know that. Second thing is that it's not a root to everything bad in the world. We can't just blame it all on money. The reality is it's the root to all kinds of different things. The love of money leads us down a path, right? That can lead to all kinds of sinful things. Neglect, moral dilemmas, struggle, 
steal. I mean, it can go any number of ways, right? Neglecting of our, our, our families to make sure that we earn more money to purchase things, to put our lives on Facebook so that everybody else can know what great lives we have in comparison to what sorry lives they have or whatever. I mean, the reality is it leads us to want to live in a different way. But that's not really what the problem is. The problem is that we've got to fight to resist greed. And greed is a stealthy killer. None of us think we're greedy. None of us. None of us think we're wealthy. It's stealthy. It sort of slowly ingrains its way into your life to where you're just constantly longing for more. You know, it's not like, I don't know if you guys ever played that game when you were growing up, Hungry Hungry Hippo. Have you ever played that game? You got, you got four little hippos, and you got a little handle, and the marbles are all in the middle, and you got to jam that tail on that hippo to eat as many marbles as you can. Whoever gets the most marbles wins, right? Hungry, hungry hippo. My brother and I, I mean, we broke that game so many times, head flying off hippos and all this kind of thing. Because we're trying to get all the marbles. We think that's what greed is. We think that it's just an all-out money grab. Like, I'm so this, give me that. I'm not giving you anything in my life. I don't share. I don't greed, greed, greed. Take, 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 take. That's not how greed works. Maybe for somebody, but for most of us, Greed is stealthy, and it sneaks in, and it begins to ingrain in our lives, and we begin to hold on to things so tightly that we're petrified the church or that God is going to try and pry them away for us. Hey, I've worked hard to save this money. We have worked diligently, and we've put it away, and I'm not about to let the church come in or whoever come in. God come in and pry it out of my hands. It wasn't a money grab, but once we've got it, our death grip on it is strong where greed begins to take hold of our lives when we won't let go of things. For most of us, it's not the reach, it's the letting go. And for a lot of us, it's a product of our environment. Once we get, it's really hard to think about going back, right? So what Paul is saying here is like, listen, don't fall in love with money. Resist greed. It's going to try and sneak up and seize you. And he's telling this to Timothy. He's saying, look, greed will seize you. Resist it. Right? Fight against the love of money. None of us in here would say we love money. Right? We love ways of life. Right? We don't love money. I don't care about the actual paper. But I love the way of life. So we get around it. We circumvent it by saying that doesn't apply to me. It applies to you. It applies to me. Resist it. Finally, I'll wrap up with this. He says this, and this is the heartbreaking part of this whole verse to me, or this whole section. He says this, For love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Of course, this is not talking about you. It's talking about somebody else. But the love of money, right? He's telling Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, the reality is when you deal with Christians, and this is what he's talking about, pastoral. Timothy, when you deal with Christians, some people, so in pursuit of the love of money, have wandered from the faith. You know what they've done? They've pierced themselves. And I love that word because it's painful. Pierced themselves with many griefs. There are two loves that we can pursue. Jesus himself talks about it in Matthew chapter 6. He says, listen, after talking about this whole kind of picture of money on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. There are going to be a couple things in your life, right? There's going to be the love of God, and there's going to be the love of money. And he says, you can't serve them both. You will serve one and the other will fall because neither of them can, both of them cannot be your masters. You cannot serve. And what he's basically getting at is that you can't say you're going to balance it. You can't say, yeah, I, I can do this. 
and I can do that. The reality is you always give one more than the other. And what Paul is saying is that some people, for the love of money, have wandered from that first love. They have wandered from the faith. It's not like they've left town and gone to a new village. They have just wandered from their first true love, and they have pierced themselves with many griefs because you can't serve them both. He's not saying that people have left the church. He's just saying that they have wandered from their true love and they have stricken their lives with griefs. Painful, piercing griefs. And I think this is true for a lot of us. We are sitting here in church, fancy $19 chairs, right? And we have pierced our life because we've allowed ourselves to fall in love with something other than the Lord. And I am certainly a part of that mix. There's two loves. Which one are we going to chase? God, I want to give you everything I have. You are my God. I want to serve you. And if that means everything else goes fine, I'm good with that. I want to cultivate that kind of contentment. I want to resist greed and not believe the cultural lie of the world, which says it's you plus something. Or or if I just give it away, then you'll give it back to me. Or we can chase this love that says, you, world, thing, stuff, I don't know how to let go of that in my pursuit of it. It's a tale of two loves, if you will. It's a tale of two loves. We can't pursue them both. And what we're going to explore beginning today and next week is what if we together for the gospel decide that we're going to take our lives and our resources financially and time and energy and we just pool them all together. And I'm not saying come put your debit card in the middle. I'm just saying that we took our heartbeats and we said, God, what if together we took our meager little existence and we said, what can you accomplish? It's yours. This little movement of Christ followers will become world changers because together for the gospel, what we can do is so much greater than what we can do on our own. Let's pray.